welcome back to the emdocs.net podcast. Today we're going to cover an EM at 3 a.m. post on jaundice. Let's start off with a case. Your patient is a 53-year-old male who presents with nausea, vomiting, decreased appetite, and complaints of turning yellow. He states this has worsened over two weeks, and his family asked him to be evaluated today. He denies any abdominal pain, fever, alcohol use, or acetaminophen intake. His vital signs are normal, but your physical exam reveals signs of jaundice on the face, chest, eyes, and oral mucosa. You also detect hepatomegaly. He really has no tenderness to abdominal palpation, and the exam is otherwise normal. With that in mind, let's talk about jaundice. Jaundice is basically due to elevated serum bilirubin, which deposits in tissues. Patients often present with symptoms due to the underlying cause of the jaundice. Frequency and etiology of the condition vary, and there are over 50,000 ED visits every year for jaundice. The most frequent causes are ischemic liver injury, pancreatic or biliary carcinoma, gallstones, and alcoholic cirrhosis. Other things to keep in mind include viral-induced and drug-related causes like acetaminophen. The normal serum bilirubin concentration is less than 1 mg per deciliter, but jaundice is not usually detectable until 2.5 mg per deciliter. Before we go any further, we need to talk a little bit about the pathophysiology. 80% of bilirubin is due to RBC breakdown in the liver and spleen, which releases unconjugated bilirubin into the serum. This is then bound to albumin and enters the liver, where it is conjugated. Conjugated bilirubin is stored in the gallbladder's bile, which then empties into the duodenum. Once in the colon, it's metabolized into two forms, one form in the stool and one form in the urine. Some of the conjugated bilirubin in the intestine is reabsorbed and then returns to the liver. Conjugated bilirubin can also enter the serum through direct diffusion out of hepatocytes, most commonly occurring in the setting of obstruction. In most circumstances, there's no bilirubin excreted in the urine. However, if the renal system is overwhelmed with conjugated bilirubin, it can be present in urine. Let's talk a little bit about the etiologies. There's two things to keep in mind. There's an indirect form and a direct form. For indirect hyperbilirubinemia, this is mainly due to bilirubin overproduction, decreased bilirubin uptake, or impaired conjugation. For direct hyperbilirubinemia, this is mainly due to extrahepatic cholestasis or obstruction or an intrahepatic cause. The post has a great breakdown of these causes for you to reference. On your history and exam, you need to keep in mind the life-threatening conditions with jaundice, which include cholangitis, massive hemolysis, hepatic failure, acute fatty liver pregnancy, and acetaminophen overdose. Your history and exam are really important parts of your patient evaluation because your history and exam can display an 86% sensitivity for determining an intrahepatic versus an extrahepatic disease. Patients can have a wide array of symptoms, including nausea and vomiting, malaise, pruritus, weight changes, edema, and even ascites. Ask about pain, fever, prior surgeries, time of onset, medications, herbal medications, alcohol and drug use, HIV history, travel, work, and family history. For your exam, take a look at their vital signs, mental status, perform a good neurologic assessment, look for asterixis, look at the lungs, evaluating for crackles and pleural fusions, look for evidence of heart failure, perform a good abdominal exam, looking for ascites and any evidence of abdominal tenderness, hepatosplenomegaly, and finally, keep in mind that jaundice is best seen in natural light rather than fluorescent light. 
predicting bilirubin levels based on jaundice is inaccurate with poor inter-rater reliability. When looking for jaundice, look at the sclera, conjunctiva, and intraoral region, which typically demonstrate jaundice before other sites. Labs can really help you out here. First, you want to make sure to obtain a direct and indirect bilirubin. Unconjugated bilirubin is reported as indirect bilirubin on labs, and conjugated as direct bilirubin. These aren't exactly equal, as indirect bilirubin underestimates the actual unconjugated form, and direct bilirubin tends to overestimate the conjugated form. Other labs to obtain include a CBC, liver function, alkaline phosphatase, coagulation panel, acetaminophen, lipase, albumin, and urinalysis. Elevation of alkaline phosphatase and GGT together suggests hepatobiliary disease. Elevation of liver function enzymes relative to the alkaline phosphatase and GGT suggests an intrahepatic cause. Elevation of alkaline phosphatase and bilirubin relative to the liver function suggests an intrahepatic or extrahepatic cause. If hemolysis is a concern based on your history and exam, obtain an LDH, haptoglobin, peripheral smear, and Coombs test. Based on your history and exam, you're probably going to want to obtain a hepatitis panel, including hepatitis A, B, and C, cytomegalovirus, EBV, HSV, and varicellar zoster. Now what about imaging? This is really an important assessment, and you have a variety of options to choose from. An ultrasound is warranted to assess gallbladder and the biliary system. Keep in mind that a dilated common bile duct greater than 5 millimeters in patients less than 50 suggests an obstruction. However, this measurement changes in older patients and in those patients who are post-cholecystectomy or in those with liver transplant. A negative ultrasound cannot exclude cholecystectomy with a sensitivity of 75%. If you find a dilated common bile duct, you're probably going to need further imaging. CT has a sensitivity of 80% and specificity of 99% for common bile duct stones. CT also allows you to evaluate other abdominal organs as well as look for the presence of a mass and stage any tumors that are present. We often don't obtain a HIDA scan directly from the ED, but this can be useful in detection of cholelithiasis or cholecystitis if ultrasound is negative, but you still have clinical concern for gallbladder or biliary tract disease. ERCP is an invasive procedure that visualizes the biliary tree and pancreatic ducts. It is better than CT and ultrasound for extrahepatic dysfunction and provides therapeutic options during the procedure. An MRCP is the most sensitive, non-invasive method for detecting biliary stones. It can be used as an alternative to ERCP in certain conditions like ductal tumors or periductal compressions. When it comes down to it, what should you use? If you have concern for malignant obstruction, CT is probably your best choice. If you're thinking gallstones or other benign obstruction, go with ultrasound first. If your ultrasound is inconclusive, move to CT. If you find a common bile duct stone in imaging, the patient needs an ERCP. If you have a patient with sclerosis and cholangitis or biliary stricture, go with MRCP. Treatment really depends on the underlying condition. If your patient is critically ill, you need to resuscitate first with IV fluids and antibiotics and treat their symptoms with antiemetics and analgesics if they're in pain. Early on in your assessment, you need to be thinking about hepatic failure. Think about transfer to a transplant center early if the patient is in hepatic failure and meets criteria for transplant. For transplant criteria, you can look at using the MELD score or the King's College criteria. If the patient is undergoing massive hemolysis, transfuse those with low hemoglobin and symptoms due to anemia. If you're concerned about HUS or TTP, 
the patient needs plasma exchange and or steroids. An extrahepatic obstruction such as cholangitis needs antibiotics and potentially an ERCP. For most of these patients with an extrahepatic obstruction, you're going to need to talk to your GI specialists and surgeons. For patients with hepatocellular injury, it really depends on their presentation, symptoms, and the underlying etiology. These patients will need antibiotics, especially if they're toxic appearing. If they're hypotensive, they're going to need resuscitation. Patients who are encephalopathic will probably need lactulose and rifaximin. For acetaminophen overdose, use the Matthew Rumac nomogram. If patients cross the toxic level, they'll need N-acetylcysteine. And if they present within two hours of the ingestion, you might be able to use charcoal. Keep in mind dialysis is another tool. What about a couple special situations in adults? Jaundice can occur in pregnancy due to several of the conditions we've already talked about and several others like hyperemesis gravidarum, intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy, infection, and acute fatty liver pregnancy. Intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy occurs in the third trimester and patients present with pruritus and cholestatic lab findings. Acute fatty liver pregnancy typically presents in the third trimester and occurs with microvesicular fat deposition in hepatocytes, and patients present with nausea and vomiting, right upper quadrant pain, and findings similar to HELP syndrome. What about the patient's status post-liver transplant? You need to talk these patients over with their transplant physician. Jaundice can be due to mechanical obstruction, infection, graft malfunction, rejection, drug toxicity, and vascular thrombosis. For disposition, most patients with jaundice will need to be admitted to the hospital. Thanks for tuning in to the emdocs.net podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and keep tuning in for more. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.